Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. In February of 2010, a distraught biology professor at the University of Alabama Huntsville opened fire at a staff meeting, killing three colleagues and critically wounding three others. The professor, Dr. Amy Bishop, taught at least five different courses in the Department of Biology, and she had been employed at the university since 2003. In 2009, six years after she was hired, Dr. Bishop went through a rigorous tenure application process and review, but her tenure was ultimately denied in March of 2009. That meant that her teaching appointment at the University of Alabama would not be renewed when her contract ended the next year in 2010. Bishop quickly appealed the Tenure Committee's decision to the university administration, but that too was denied. Nearly a year later, Bishop plotted a revenge attack against her department. This episode is titled, Tenure Denied, A Professor's Revenge. So without further ado, let's get started. February 12, 2010, neurobiologist Dr. Amy Bishop entered a windowless conference room on the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. She was there for a staff meeting with at least 12 other employees in the Department of Biology. Bishop, a normally vocal, outspoken woman, sat quietly next to the department chair, Dr. Gopi Podila, who had distributed an agenda and was leading the meeting. Inside the purse Bishop was clutching was a 9mm Ruger handgun, and she was prepared to use it. For 50 minutes, nearly a whole hour, Bishop remained quiet. She said nothing, but as the meeting was coming to a close, Bishop stood up, pulled out the gun, and shot Podila point-blank in the head. Bishop fired the gun again, this time hitting department assistant Stephanie Monticciolo. Then she shot Dr. Adriel Johnson, a cell biologist. Bishop continued going around the table, shooting employees one by one, execution style. That is, until she got to her colleague, Dr. Deborah Moriarty. At that point, Moriarty had thrown herself to the floor and dove under the table. She flung her arms around Bishop's legs, looked up at her coworker, and screamed, Amy, don't do this. Think of my daughter. Think of my grandson. Bishop looked down at her, eyes focused, and cold-heartedly pulled the trigger. But by pure divine intervention, the gun suddenly jammed. Moriarty crawled past Bishop and into the hallway, but Bishop followed her with the gun as she repeatedly pulled the trigger. Each time, though, thankfully, the only sound that came out was a click. 
As Bishop attempted to fix the gun, Moriarty scrambled back into the conference room and another surviving colleague barricaded the door. Bishop, realizing her shooting spree had come to an end, went downstairs to a women's restroom where she rinsed off the gun and tossed it into the trash, along with her blazer that was covered in blood. She then walked into a research lab and asked the student if she could borrow his cell phone. She called her husband, Jim Anderson, who often picked her up from work, and she told him to come get her. But as she made her way out a back door near a loading dock, police were waiting for her. She was then apprehended and hauled off in handcuffs. The next morning, after Bishop was arrested, Police in Huntsville, Alabama, received a disturbing call from the police chief in Braintree, Massachusetts, a Boston suburb where Bishop had grown up. That police chief on the other end of the call dropped a bombshell on police in Alabama. He said, quote, The woman you have in custody, I thought you'd want to know. She shot and killed her brother back in 1986. End quote. So, to truly tell you this story in its entirety... And for us to even begin to understand what happened here, because I know I started this episode off with a bang. So in order for us to truly understand, I need to go way back to April of 1965, when Amy Bishop was born. For the first three years of her life, Bishop lived with her parents, Sam and Judy Bishop, in Iowa City. As her father completed graduate work in fine arts at the University of Iowa, he would often paint during the day for his studies and work as a janitor at night to make ends meet. According to the reporting of Patrick Radden Keefe for The New Yorker, Bishop was a bright, emphatic child. For example, she would often arrange her toys in elaborate formations and then play with them as if they were marching in a parade. By 1968, though, Amy's father, Sam, had landed a teaching job in the Department of Northeastern University in Boston, so the family moved to Massachusetts and settled in the town of Braintree. Or I should say that they moved back to Massachusetts because that's where Amy's parents were originally from. Then, later that year in 1968, Amy Bishop's younger brother, Seth, was born, and the Bishop family was complete. The family, Sam, Judy, Amy, and Seth, lived in a large Victorian-style home with a covered porch in the middle-class suburb of Braintree. Once settling there, Judy made a name for herself in the town, becoming civically involved and joining a local governing body called the Town Meeting. In fact, some even said that Judy became the spokesperson of Braintree. If anybody had a problem, Judy was their first call. But Judy's family was always her number one priority. For example, while Amy was growing up, she had severe asthma as a kid, and so her childhood was filled with Judy frequently taking her to the emergency room. Actually, that part of Amy's life is what attracted her to science in the first place. Essentially, she was determined to find a cure. Amy was also highly intelligent, even learning to play the violin at a young age. But Seth, her brother, was intelligent as well. By all accounts, both Amy and Seth were quite studious kids. However, considering the fact that they were academically driven in a town that valued sports and athletics, or in other words, it was quote-unquote a jock town, well, you might understand how it would be hard for Amy and Seth to fit in. And Amy especially was a bit of a loner. But still, their family as a unit was strong and closer than ever. And people in the town who knew the Bishop children, both Amy and Seth, insisted that they were always close, that they always had a strong sibling bond. A good friend of the family's, Kathleen Oldham, explained that Amy enjoyed having a younger sibling. Oldham said that Amy, quote, doted on her little brother. 
They both loved music, loved science. She seemed to enjoy having someone younger to collaborate with, end quote. And Amy herself told Radden Keefe in an interview that she has fond memories of growing up with Seth. She remembered going to the beach and spending their summers at their grandmother's lake house. After graduating from Braintree High School, Amy followed in her father's footsteps and attended college at Northeastern where he worked. However, while her father's interest was in the arts, Amy's was more in the sciences. Regardless, by 1985, Amy had moved to Boston to attend college, though she often went home on the weekend since it was so close. But also in 1985, something else happened to the family that would give them all a big scare. The bishops returned home one night to discover that their house had been burglarized and ransacked. The thieves took Judy's wedding ring, a pair of silver cups commemorating the births of Amy and Seth, as well as several other valuable items. Then the thieves stuffed all of those items into pillowcases taken from Amy's and Seth's beds. So as you can imagine, the family was absolutely distraught and frightened. Sam was actually so upset about the situation that despite both Judy's and Amy's protests, he went and purchased a 12-gauge shotgun for protection. The women were uneasy about Sam purchasing a gun, but they were even more nervous about him keeping it in the house. But still, the gun ended up in Sam's bedroom closet, unloaded, with a box of shells nearby on his dresser. More than a year later, on December 6, 1986, the gun that Sam purchased the previous year would be the family's ultimate demise. On the morning of December 6th, Judy Bishop left the family's home early, while it was still dark outside and the rest of her family was still sleeping. She went to nearby Quincy, Massachusetts, where she kept a horse. According to Radden Keefe's article in The New Yorker, Judy would often spend a few hours exercising the horse and cleaning its stables. Now, we know when she left that morning, but the real question is when she returned home. So I'll come back around to that a little later. What's important here is that Judy was home by 2 p.m. on December 6, 1986, because that's when she called police. Her daughter had shot her son with the shotgun, she frantically told the 911 operator, and it had been a terrible accident. She said she saw the whole thing. Officers quickly arrived at the scene, and Judy met them at the front door. Her clothing was covered in blood spatter. Judy showed them to the kitchen, where her 18-year-old son lay in a pool of blood on the floor. Amy, who was 21 at the time, was nowhere to be found inside the house. As paramedics worked on Seth to try and revive him, Judy explained to officers what just happened moments earlier. Judy said that Seth had just returned home from the grocery store, and Judy was in the kitchen with him when Amy came downstairs, carrying Sam's shotgun. Judy explained, quote, Amy said to me, I have a shell in the gun, and I don't know how to unload it. I told Amy not to point the gun at anybody, end quote. But as Amy swung the weapon around, the gun went off. The bullet hit Seth in the chest from a point-blank range in the small kitchen. As Seth hit the floor, Amy ran away. While paramedics transported Seth to the nearby Quincy City Hospital, police began searching for Amy. They didn't know it at the time, but after Amy shot Seth, she ran out of the kitchen and exited through the back door of the home. The whole time, she was still carrying the gun with her. On foot, she crossed the street and cut through a wooded area before she arrived at an auto body shop at a Ford dealership. According to mechanics at the shop, Amy entered the establishment with the shotgun, and she demanded that they give her keys to a car. One of the mechanics working that day, Tom Pettigrew, told the New York Times that they saw a woman walking around, looking into cars, carrying a shotgun. Pettigrew recalled, quote, I kind of stepped back and said, what's going on? What are you doing here? She said, put your hands up. 
I put my hands up and repeated the question. She was distraught. She was hyper aware of everything that was going on. She said, I need a car. I just got into a fight with my husband. He's looking for me and he's going to kill me. End quote. At that point, the men working there in complete shock scattered, running away from the lady with the gun. Soon after, an officer found Amy still holding the shotgun near a newspaper distribution agency. The officer, Ronald Solimini, noted that she looked incredibly frightened and disoriented. Solimini approached her slowly as he tried to reason with her to put the weapon down. But she continued to clinch onto the gun for dear life, which sparked another officer, Tim Murphy, to approach her from behind. As Solimini continued to talk to her, Murphy crept closer behind her with his gun drawn, until finally he shouted, Drop the rifle! Drop the rifle! Amy complied, and the officers handcuffed her and took her to the police station. After taking her into custody, they found one shell still in the shotgun and another shell in her pocket. Once at the station, Officer James Sullivan attempted to interview her about what exactly happened in the kitchen that day, but they didn't get very far because Amy was inconsolable. The little information he did get was that Amy was home alone and she began to feel scared. According to Sullivan's notes that he would later write, quote, she stated that she loaded the shotgun because she had been worried about robbers coming into the house, end quote. Apparently, she told the officer that Seth had taught her how to load the weapon, but he never taught her how to unload it. So while she was at home, she said she grabbed the gun from her father's closet and took it back to her room where she attempted to teach herself how to load and unload several shells. But as she was doing this, she said the gun discharged right there in her room, which shattered a vanity mirror and blasted a hole in the wall. Then she said when she heard Seth come home, she took the gun downstairs to ask him to help her unload it. That's when the unthinkable happened and the gun discharged for a second time, this time though, hitting Seth directly in the chest. So that was just the little bit of information that the officer could get out of Amy right after this all happened. So at the station that night. Now, as you probably already know, Seth Bishop did not survive the shooting. He was officially pronounced deceased at 3.06 p.m. in the hospital. An autopsy would later reveal that the official cause of death was a ruptured aorta as a result of the gunshot wound. Although officers needed to get more information from Amy, and her parents for that matter, they decided to release her into the custody of her parents and finish questioning her at a later time. A police report described that this decision was, quote, due to the inability to question the witnesses at the time as a result of their highly emotional state and their inability to recall specifically the facts relating to this occurrence, end quote. However, Braintree police were also heavily relying on Judy Bishop's eyewitness account that the whole thing was an awful, tragic accident. So the investigation proceeded as such rather than a crime scene or a homicide. The police report also stated, quote, it was determined that additional interviews would be conducted at a later time, allowing the witnesses sufficient time to stabilize their emotions, end quote. So when police did finally question the family again, it was 11 whole days after the shooting on December 17, 1986. And when they did interview them, they got slightly varying accounts of what exactly happened inside the home that day. For starters, Amy had previously told police that her father left the house that morning after a family spat. But later, in Sam's interview with police, he described it as a simple disagreement with Amy over a comment she had made. Regardless, though, he said he left the house at around 11.30 a.m. to go Christmas shopping. 
When Sam did leave, Seth was at home, he said, but he was outside washing his car while Amy was somewhere inside the house. Sam told police that after he and Amy got into that little tiff, Amy had went upstairs to her room. Then, when Sam returned home from Christmas shopping, he said he was met with the lights and sirens of the emergency vehicles in his driveway. Okay, so that was Sam's account. Next, police interviewed Judy, officially. According to an official police report written by State Trooper Brian Howe, which was submitted to the District Attorney's Office on March 30th, 1987, Judy explained that she had returned home for lunch after taking care of her horse in nearby Quincy, just like we had already known. Judy said Seth was home when she returned, and he told her he would go to the grocery store to pick up some items so they could make some lunch. According to Judy's account, Seth returned home from the grocery store and then went into the living room to turn on the TV. He was on his way back into the kitchen from the living room when Amy came downstairs with the shotgun. Judy said Amy first asked her, Judy, if she could help her unload the gun, which Judy immediately replied by telling Amy not to point it at anyone. Judy explained that that is when Amy turned and the weapon accidentally discharged, hitting Seth square in the chest as he was making his way back into the kitchen from the living room. At that point, Judy said she screamed, Seth hit the floor, and Amy ran out. Judy then called police and waited for them at the front door. However, Judy told investigators that in the moment, she knew Seth's injury from the gunshot was so severe that he would likely not survive. If you remember, though, Amy said she had been tampering with the gun, trying to load and unload it in her room upstairs before she ever came downstairs, and that the gun had first discharged in her room. So police asked Judy if she heard any prior discharges of the shotgun before this, to which she said no, she had not heard anything. But she also told them that she believed their home was relatively soundproof, and she wasn't sure if she would be able to hear it from downstairs, especially if Amy's bedroom door was closed. Finally, police interviewed Amy again to get her account of the shooting. And I want you to pay particular attention to some of the details that Amy told police in comparison to how Judy recalled them. They are slightly different. Now, whether that means anything, I don't know. It's just an observation that I want you to keep in mind. So Amy told police that she had been concerned for her safety ever since the break-in of the family's home. And while she was at home that day, she thought it would be a good idea to learn how to load and unload the shotgun because she said she often heard stories about things that happen when people break into houses and find other people inside. So Amy retrieved the shotgun from her parents' room where she found it unloaded in a chest. She put the shells into the gun and then tried to get them back out. While she was attempting to unload the weapon, which was lying on her bed, it discharged in her room. However, she said she didn't recall putting any more shells into the gun after it discharged. Not long after, Amy said she heard her brother come into the house downstairs, and she said her mother had been in the kitchen for a while. When Amy heard her brother come home, that's when she took the gun downstairs to ask him to help her unload it. Amy said she went down the front set of stairs that led to the dining room, and then she proceeded to walk toward the door by the kitchen. At that point, Amy said, she asked her brother to unload the gun because she thought it might still be loaded. She explained that her mother said something to her after this, but that she couldn't recall what her mother said to her exactly. When she came downstairs, though, Amy said she was carrying the shotgun beside her pointed down toward her leg. According to Amy's account, Seth told her to point it up. At that point, Amy explained, Seth was walking toward her in the kitchen But as she started to raise it, as her brother had apparently instructed her to do to point it up, 
Someone said something to her again, she said. Amy explained that that is when she turned and the gun went off. She said she remembered her brother saying, oh God, and her mother immediately screaming. Amy told police that in the moment, she thought she had blasted a hole in the wall of the kitchen, just like she had done in her bedroom, which was something she would be in trouble for, but she was not aware she had shot her brother. That's when she said she reacted out of shock and ran out the back door of the kitchen. She also said that she thought she had dropped the gun as she ran out, and she said she did not remember putting on her jean jacket before she sprinted off either, but she did all those things. Amy said she could not recall anything that happened after that, like at the Ford dealership or anywhere, until her mother picked her up from the police station later in the evening. Amy added that her brother had taught her how to hold the gun, but that she had always been afraid of it. During her interview with police, she was adamant that the discharges were accidental. She also disclosed that she was having a terribly hard time coping with the whole situation and that she was on medication under a doctor's care. Okay, so I know that was a lot of information and it was basically like three people's accounts thrown at you back to back. But as we go through this, I'll point out the important pieces of information that I need you to remember. So just keep in mind that now that we know each person's account, I really want to point out some of the differences between the stories. For example, Amy hinted that she had been home alone, which is why she wanted to try to teach herself how to unload and load the shotgun in the first place, right? Well, here's the thing. I'm just not sure when she was home alone. I mean, her brother had been there at 1130 when her father left to go Christmas shopping. And then her mom was already at home when Seth left to go to the grocery store. And then by 2 p.m., that's when the 911 call happened. So between 1130 and 2 p.m., I have no idea when she was home alone. Anyway, Judy also told police that Amy came downstairs and asked her, Judy, to help her with the gun. But Amy told them she heard her brother come in and that she went downstairs to specifically ask him for help, not her mother. Like she had, she mentioned nothing about her mom. So anyway, despite the little nuances, if you want to call them or big differences, I don't know what they are. Despite the differences in the family's recollections of that day, the investigation wrapped up pretty quickly. According to the official report that was submitted to the DA's office, quote, it was determined that due to testimony of the Bishop family and in particular, the testimony of Judy Bishop relevant to the facts concerning the death of Seth Bishop, that no further investigation into the death of Seth Bishop was warranted. It was therefore determined that the cause of death of Seth Bishop would be listed as the accidental discharge of a firearm in the possession of his sister, Amy Bishop, and that the investigation would be concluded. End quote. Here's another thing, though. <laughs> Even if they had wanted to treat it as a crime scene rather than a scene of a tragic accident, it was basically impossible to do. You see, in the hours after the shooting, while the Bishop family was out, neighbors and friends cleaned the house. Like they literally scrubbed Seth's blood off the kitchen floor to spare the family the agonizing task. Plus, people had come in and out numerous times to drop off food and offer their condolences. So essentially, the whole crime scene was jeopardized. What forensic evidence there could have been was most likely tampered by all the people coming in and out of the home. After the shooting, according to The New Yorker, Amy became incredibly withdrawn and depressed. 
She received no real therapy or mental health treatment whatsoever, something that would likely be required if the incident happened today, in 2024. But Amy's father, Sam, didn't really believe in therapy or psychiatric treatment because the topic was so taboo back then. And apparently, Amy became so withdrawn after the shooting that her friends would have to coax her to leave the house during the day, and then at night, she would sleep with her parents in their room. Amy explained to a reporter that a part of her didn't want to confront what happened. She just wanted the pain to go away so she could get on with her life. She said, quote, I was very insular, sticking to the house and trying to get over things. I felt terrible. I didn't want to explore feeling terrible, end quote. And to add to the trauma, Sam and Judy chose to not move out of the house. So I can't imagine what it was like for any of them, let alone Amy, who had to eat meals in the very kitchen where Seth had so tragically died. Eventually, Amy Bishop continued on with her education at Northeastern, although she did move back home to live with her parents. Each day, she would ride to campus with her father, attend classes, and then go back to his office and wait for him to finish work so he could drive her back home. According to a family friend, Amy did incredibly well in school, but she seemed to deflect her grief by pouring herself into her studies and earning good grades. Her grades, however, would eventually get her into Harvard. More specifically, Amy enrolled in the PhD program in genetics at Harvard in 1988. The next year, in 1989, while she was enrolled in that program, she married a man named Jim Anderson, whom she had previously met at Northeastern. I guess the two had hit it off after they both joined a group on campus devoted to Dungeons and Dragons, or D&D if you're more familiar with that, and, and other role-playing games. And just a side note, the two were married in the same church where the bishops had held Seth's wake just a few years earlier. According to that piece in The New Yorker, Amy was still facing a lot of grief during this time, and her father suggested that the best way to overcome grief of a life was to bring new life into the world, to create new life herself. So Amy and her husband Jim did just that, and they quickly began starting a family of their own. In 1991, Amy gave birth to their first daughter, Lily, and their other two daughters, Thea and Phaedra, soon followed. Here's the thing, though. Amy did all of this, she got married, started a family, took care of small children, and continued grieving her brother while she was enrolled in that PhD program. So as her personal life became her priority, her studies began to suffer. Needless to say, the PhD program became very difficult for her, a stark difference from her undergraduate degree. But I mean, as somebody who has a PhD, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what program isn't difficult. So that's just my two cents. But I really can't imagine trying to get your PhD while dealing with all that life stuff in the process. Anyway, because of this, Amy Bishop had trouble passing and earning the degree. But in 1993, after she revised her thesis, she was eventually awarded the PhD. Until 1996, so after Amy and Jim had married and had their children, their family lived on Amy's family's property in a cottage next to her parents' home in Braintree. Apparently, Amy was one of those moms who only trusted her own mother to babysit her children, so that just made it more convenient. But the bishops finally sold their home in 1996 and moved 35 miles north to Ipswich, Massachusetts, which meant Amy and Jim had to move off the property as well. A few years later, in 2001, Amy had her one and only baby boy, 
whom she named Seth in honor of her brother. But, according to that New Yorker article, very few of Amy's friends were aware of the significance of the name. You see, Amy rarely, if ever, talked about her brother or the shooting. She kind of just put it in its own sealed box in the back of her mind and kept on living, almost as if it never happened. But still, Amy's friends thought it strange that she never talked about her brother, like, at all. One of her friends, Gail, recalled, quote, I knew her when she was pregnant. Imagine having a whole conversation about baby names with someone who is sidestepping the fact that she's going to name her baby after her brother, who she killed, end quote. What's even more poetic, if you will, about the whole situation is that Amy's son, Seth, was born on what would have been her brother Seth's 33rd birthday. And that, campus cronies, is where we will pick up next week on part two of this story. But if you've been following along with me for the past few weeks, you know that today I launched a Patreon officially. So if you go and join my Patreon, you can get early access to part two of this episode right now. That's right. I now have a Patreon. And for just $5 a month, not only can you get early access to part two of this episode, but you'll get one extra episode of Campus Crime Chronicles each month. So that's five episodes total a month. Plus, you can listen to all of my episodes ad-free and you'll get an official Campus Crime Chronicles sticker sent straight to you. So you'll head on over to my social media, Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook and Instagram for a direct link to my Patreon page. For now, that officially brings us to the end of part one of Chronicle 65. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget, I launched that Patreon, so go sign up for it right now if you want early access to part two of this chronicle. Happy New Year. That is my New Year's gift to you guys. Okay, y'all. Well, that is all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again next Monday for the next Chronicle. <laughs>